Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26. We have some uh, handouts here for those in the obstructed vision seats over on my right. Sorry about that, but uh, the wreath takes center stage here during the month of December, and we cannot project what we'd like to on the wall, but uh, we will have an outline here a little bit, or just a graphic of the connections that are made in this passage between Isaac and Abraham. Genesis 26. In recent years, there has been a trend among a few very popular artists to emphasize light in their paintings. If you spend any time at all in a shopping mall, you know what I mean. In malls these days, it's pretty hard not to pass down the corridors and to pass by an art store that is prominently displaying some of these artists who use light as their theme in every picture. Every painting that these artists offer is a unique scene. It might be a blazing fire of burning leaves on a village lawn. It might be the warm glow of lights from within a cabin. It might be a beautiful sunset across a lake. It might even be sometimes simply a lamp that is hung on the side of an old shed. But these artists paint in their many different scenes one theme, and that theme is light. So the scenery changes but the artist essentially does not. He applies himself to changing scenes in essentially the same way every time. And so it is with God as he paints the story of human history. The scenery changes, but God does not. As time marches on, God is actively painting new scenery with every new subject. But his character never changes, and his purpose as the artist of history never evolves. This means if you belong to his people through personal faith and the saving work of Jesus Christ, the God who called this world into existence out of nothing is your God. Different scene, same artist, same purpose. It means that the God who called Abram from Ur of Mesopotamia and, prom and promised him an offspring and a land. That is your God. Different scene, same artist. The God who delivered Israel from Egypt with miraculous power, your God, same God. The God who split the sea, who rained down bread on the desert floor, who toppled Jericho and brought Israel into the promised land by splitting the Jordan, same God. The God who swept Elijah up into heaven on a fiery chariot, who delivered Daniel from the lion's den, who appeared before Isaiah in a grand vision of glory. The same God, and the same God is at work in your life. The God who sent Jesus to die on earth and to rise from the dead for your salvation. Same God today. A God who empowered the apostles to work miracles and preach the gospel. Who empowered the early church to spread like wildfire and transform an empire. That God who sustained the martyrs through the centuries and who sustains those martyrs today. That is the same God. He's your God. 
He's painting a unique scene in your life. A unique scene, but he's the same artist working on the same themes. His program has undergone considerable development through the centuries, but his character and his basic intent are not changed. As the theologians say, he is immutable. He doesn't change. Same artist, same themes, different scenery. By his very nature in every age, God paints into every dark scene of this fallen world a ray of brilliant light. That light is his unfailing, tenacious commitment to love and to bless his people. God is, by his very nature right now, I hope that you can get a sense of this. As you think back on what he's done in history, think of it now. He is right now showering down upon your head goodness and mercy and love and abundant blessing. That's just how he paints. If you belong to him, you are in the crosshairs of his loyal love and he will not be denied. He loves you with an everlasting love and with great passion he is blessing and will bless your life. That's his nature. We find clear evidence, I think, of this reality here in Genesis chapter 26, which recounts a broad swath of the life of Isaac. My comment last week that Isaac's life is recounted <coughs> only in connection with his son Jacob's life might seem overstated today as we look at this passage, but I don't think that it really is. Remember, last week, if you look there at chapter 25, the second half of the chapter, we started looking at the life of Jacob. There, that his birth is accounted there, is accounted for there in chapter 25, as well as his gaining of the birthright as an adult son. So the story of Jacob has begun. Now we come to chapter 26, and all of a sudden we're talking about Isaac. Where do we go in chapter 27? We're right back to Jacob, and Jacob's life goes on for a considerable period of time in the text of Scripture. So I think it is something of an interruption here to describe Isaac's life. But what matters most to us at this point is that this particular narrative goes out of its way to connect Abraham to Isaac. Abraham's God is Isaac's God. And there's a theme there, there's a principle there for us. But as we look at this passage, as I look at why it is placed where it is in the Jacob account, this is what I think must stand out to us and we'll show this graphically here for you in just a few moments. And we'll see that as we go throughout the text. Isaac's God is Abraham's God. Same God, different scene, same theme. He pours out his blessing upon his children. Isaac is, of course, the necessary link between Abraham and Jacob. And that link could not be more carefully drawn than it is in this chapter. If the ancient Hebrews had magic markers, there'd be magic marker all over this chapter. There would be colored themes connecting back to the life of Abraham. And they would almost be flashing at us, telling us, check this out, make this connection, notice this, Abraham's God is Isaac's God. God's promise to Abraham flows through Isaac and on to Jacob. 
This narrative breaks down into three major scenes at three separate locations as this point is made so clearly. And through each scene we learn something about how God loyally blesses his people. In every chapter of scripture, in every place, God is the major player. He is the one that the book is about. And here in this chapter, there just descends upon me the sense of the love and the passion of God for his people. You put together everything that you've ever seen of love and loyalty in the hearts of any person you've ever known, and it doesn't even scratch the surface of God's loyalty to his people. He loves, and he loves to bless, and he leaves no one behind. If you're his, if you belong to him through saving faith in Jesus Christ, he is and he will pour out his blessing upon your life. Now we'll talk about how to apply that. I think many misstep. But we notice this and we'll go through as we apply here. First of all, scene one is Gerar. And we find here a crisis of faith. Let's read this scene. If you follow as I read through this scene, beginning at verse one of chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commandments, my decrees and my laws, so Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought, the men of that place will kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham the, Philistines, Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. Let's consider this period of Isaac's life in Gerar. You notice verse 1, let's go back there. In verse 1 you see... That Moses, the author of the book, purposefully links Isaac's trial with Abraham's. <laughs> Moses could have just retold Isaac's trial. Could have just started out and let us know the story. But notice what he does there in verse 1. This is a famine besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. Again, it is a way to arrest our attention, to get our attention. 
by saying it this way, it's very interesting what Moses does. He first of all separates this ordeal from Abraham's time, thereby linking together the identical trial that both men suffered. Different times, but same trial, famine. This takes us back in our mind to chapter 12. Remember when I, Abraham goes down into Egypt because of the famine. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 20, where he is with Abimelech. There not because of famine, but there dealing with the issue of his wife. And we notice also, if you look at verse 1, at verse 3, you find the reference to Abraham. Repeated em emphasis here through this section. It's found in verse 5. It's found in verse 15. Abraham is Isaac's father. Continual emphasis, continual linkage of Abraham and Isaac. Maybe we could put that overhead on. I think we'll just leave, the, leave it on here. We'll leave the lights on and uh, it, whatever you can pick out there. But we'll see throughout, as we work our way through, we'll see a continual connection between these two men is purposely made in the text. According to verse 2, notice it there in Genesis 26, now down to verse 2, the Lord appears to Isaac, and Isaac is apparently headed for Egypt. But God stops him and says, stay in Gerar within the confines of the promised land. So sojourning in Philistine territory, God stresses that he will bless Isaac as the inheritor of God's promises of land and of an offspring to Abraham. In verses 3 and 4, we find words that are very similar to what we have seen spoken to Abraham. As he blessed his father... So God stresses here that Isaac will become a great people and will inherit Palestine. Two themes, a land and a people. We've seen that promise over and over again to Abraham. And here it is, same words to Isaac, a land and a promise. As he blessed his father, so he blesses the son. Why does God promise this blessing to Isaac? Notice verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commandments, my decrees, and my laws. That's a very intriguing phrase, which we won't take time to get into. This is a pre-Sinaitic moment, but yet these are, these are phrases that very much parallel the Old Testament law. We won't discuss that. Maybe something to chew on if you think about it later. But we find here that Abraham's obedience is the connection between God's promises and their realization. What did Abraham do? He left Ur of Mesopotamia by trusting God and fathering a son through his 90-year-old wife, Sarah. Abraham's obedience served, in a sense, as the pipe through which God's blessing poured or flowed down. And it's always that way. Our obedience never forces God to bless us, never for a moment. But when God calls his people, their active obedience serves as the conduit of God's blessing. Blessing and obedience go hand in hand. But in Gerar, it's not all easy. The southwestern region of Palestine inhabited by the Philistines is a place of danger, and Isaac encounters trouble here, at least in his mind. Remember, this account is an insertion in the lengthier Jacob narrative. So it's not necessarily chronologically arranged. And I think the indication is here that Abimelech, not being able to detect the real relationship between Rebekah and Isaac, there is some question 
or at least it would, it would indicate to us that Jacob and Esau have probably not been born at this place. He could not determine that they were husband and wife. We would, we would assume that would be the case. So it's not chronologically arranged. Remember, 26 or 25 and 27 are dealing with Jacob in adulthood. It's an insertion in the text. It crystallizes the life of Isaac. And so here as he comes down to Gerar, he probably does not have children. And once again, the promise to Abraham is in great jeopardy. The one son that can bring about the offspring and the promise to Abraham is now in a place of danger. His wife is in a place of danger. God has said to him, God re reiterates the promise, and he says, I will make you as numerous as the stars in the sky. You will be a great offspring. But where's Isaac's head as he gets into Gerar? It's not looking up to God and hearing those promises and depending in faith upon those promises. Isaac begins to look around and he gets scared. And so he lies. She is my sister. Isaac panics. He doesn't trust. He panics. He fears man. And so he lies to the men of Gerar in verse 7. She is my sister. We've heard all of this before. As with Abraham, and as with us, God's blessing and the fulfillment of his promises never depend upon lying. And Isaac's plan backfires. According to verse 8, Isaac lived a lie for some time in Gerar. And when you live a lie, your guard eventually drops. In a crucial moment, you slip and you fail to play the part. And that's what happens here to Isaac. The real person comes out. And he's found in verse 8 by Abimelech looking down through a window, apparently from his palace or some, uh, some type of structure. He's looking down through the window and there is Jacob, or Isaac rather, caressing Rebekah. There's a play on words here. Isaac's name means laughter and here the son of laughter is laughing with his wife. Well, whatever the word actually means, he's playing. He's having fun with her in a way that is only appropriate for a husband and a wife. The trouble is Abimelech is watching and he wants a word with Isaac. He knows he's been deceived and he wants an explanation. In verse 9, Isaac explains. In verse 10, Abimelech rebukes Isaac just as Abimelech rebuked Abraham in chapter 20. What's happening here? Isaac's fear makes a mockery of God's promises. He defames God's grace and God's power. Out of fear, he looks around and he caves into man rather than in faith looking to God and trusting. The king that Isaac should be blessing is rightfully unimpressed with Isaac's method of operation. And so another Abimelech rebukes a patriarch. Abimelech rebukes Isaac. Now, I should probably stop here to note, Abimelech is probably a dynastic title. It's very doubtful that this is uh, uh, some 75 years removed from the event with Abraham. Abimelech, as a matter of fact, even the word itself, Melech, is the Hebrew word for king. So we're probably not talking about the same Abimelech that runs into uh, Isaac that ran into Abraham under very similar circumstances, but a Philistine king, Abimelech, and that would be true of the other uh, names that will be given here below of <laughs> the men of Gerar, the officials of Gerar. At any rate, 
Abimelech rebukes Isaac, reminding him that his efforts to save his own neck have jeopardized everyone else's. And Abimelech is unimpressed. We see his response in verse 11, very similar to Pharaoh's in Egypt, very similar to the Abimelech of chapter 20 with Abraham. He says, no one touches them, no one molests them. The word molest is the Hebrew word touch. And I think he's probably using it in a double sense here. Anyone who physically harms Isaac is in trouble. Anyone who sexually violates Rebekah is in trouble. Stay away from this couple. How does God respond to this moral failure on Isaac's part? I mean, this is not a pretty picture. Isaac is not operating the way a godly man should operate. This is not a man of deep faith trusting God in the dark and saying, God, your promise seems to conflict with the dangers I'm facing, but I'm going to trust your promise. This is a man who's caving in to the world around him and says to God's word, I don't think so. How does God respond? We need to be very careful here, but notice, though we know that God hates lying and has every right to punish Isaac, what does he do? He blesses him. He pours down his grace and his goodness upon Isaac. If we are not going to adopt a retribution theology, we need to have room in our thinking for such an event. Isaac sins. God blesses. Verse 12, he reaps a bumper crop when there's a famine in the land. In verse 13, through hard work and the unique blessing of God, Isaac becomes very wealthy. Verse 14, he adds flocks and herds and servants. He is under tremendous blessing. You remember what happened to Abraham when he sojourned in Egypt and Gerar? What happened? He left both places enriched. In, in the second instance, he li- the first instance, he lied about his wife. In both instances, Abraham was enriched. And in similar fashion, Isaac is enriched by God here. Isaac is truly a chosen son of the line of promise. Well, when God blesses your life, particularly when people don't think you really deserve it, when he blesses your life, people get jealous. And the Philistines envied Isaac, verse 14. Notice it there at the end. The Philistines envied him. Not being strong enough to seize Isaac's wealth, what do they do? The only thing the men of Gerar can do is terrorize him. If you can't defeat a more powerful enemy, if you can't compete with a more powerful enemy, you destroy what they have. Terrorism. So they fill in his wells with dirt, taking away in that dry land Isaac's ability to water his flocks and his herds, verse 15. They stopped up the wells, filling them with earth. To add to the insult to the injury, Abimelech asks Isaac to leave, verse 16. Move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. Abimelech cannot demand that Isaac leave because Isaac is too powerful. But in verse 16, what is he saying? Essentially, listen, we were here first. Will you please pack up and get out of here? You're too much for us. There's something going on, but we cannot compete any longer. Get out of here. So Isaac's sojourn comes to an unglorious end. It started in what? 
It started in famine and in danger. Where does it end? It ends as a recipient of God's unique blessing. On the surface, everything was against Isaac when he came to, Ger to Gerar. Everything except for God. He enters a man in crisis and he leaves a man of wealth and standing. There's a principle here as we talk about the artist who paints different scenes but works with the same themes. This, that principle is this. God blesses his people despite their sin. God blesses his people despite their sin. There's a principle here that we need to follow and we need to come to terms with it. When God's people sin, they always suffer for it. We need to hear that as well. When God's people sin, they do always suffer for it. Sin is its own pain and may result in divine discipline. But our sin never cancels God's loyalty. If you are his child, he will loyally love you and pour out his blessing upon you. The issue is, are you his child? So often this word is not stated because it's dangerous. It sends the message to some that we can therefore live however we want to live. And we can go on and sin and God will continue to bless our lives anyway. Just remember the first part of the statement. Sin is its own punishment. Discipline. God does discipline. But if you belong to him, he will remain loyal to you to the day you die and through eternity. His loyalty will never turn off of your head. He will bless you. And he is blessing you despite your sin. There's a subtle pride that can creep into our hearts. If we receive the blessing of God, we notice the blessing of God, we can tend to say in our hearts, because of what I'm doing, because of my goodness, because of my obedience, God blesses. He blesses everyone who obeys like I obey. God blesses his people for one reason. He's loyal to them. He loves them. If it was a matter of obedience and disobedience, there is not one of us that deserves one ounce of blessing from God. It's his love alone that blesses his people for one reason. They're his people. He didn't choose Isaac because he was some wonderful man, a man of great faith. He chose Isaac because he loved him. And because in choosing Isaac, God was going to remain true to his word to Abraham. And Isaac, he was just under the shower of blessing. And he enjoyed it, despite his sin. As was true with his father. Abraham sinned too in very similar circumstances, but God continued to bless. God blesses his people despite their sin. Scene two, a valley of Gerar. We have again another crisis here. Verse 17, we're in a different location. Verse 17, Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. See the linkage again. And he gave them the same names as his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, and he named it Sitna. 
He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. Scene 2. Sending Isaac away in that territory was a death sentence on his wealth. His flocks were doomed without water, and water was a rare commodity. He moves away to the valley of Gerar, apparently somewhat outside of the settlement of Philistines in Gerar. And while he is there, he does the only thing that he can do. It's a desperate attempt, but he says, listen, we have preserved knowledge of where the wells of my father are and that, that were filled up by the Philistines. We're on the outside of the settlement. Let's go back to those holes and dig them out. So his servants go to work. Experiencing the love and the blessing of God does not guarantee, however, that others are going to love you. He uncovers the wells, but as Isaac's servants uncover them, he's not far enough from Gerar yet. The first name, Essek, means dispute. Sitna means opposition. So there's continual quarreling with the herdsmen. Not so much now with Abimelech himself and maybe the people in the settlement of Gerar, but with the shepherds that are on the outside, they're still giving Isaac all kinds of trouble. Naming these wells, recovering the wells of his father was a way of saying that they were his, and disputes over such wells were very commonplace in this part of the world because water was so rare. But with the opening of Rehoboth, Isaac realizes and the word meaning space, Isaac realizes that God has given him freedom from the hassles of his neighbors, of his enemies. Here we find a connection between Isaac, who steps back and says, Rehoboth. There's space. There's peace in the land. What, what's the connection? With Abraham, it was the separation from Lot. Lot goes to the fertile plain. Lot goes to the better place. But Abraham overlooks the land. And there's a sense of peace. We have the same now between father and son as God continues to bless them. And we find here a second principle. God blesses his people in the midst of trials. There are many Christians today who describe God's blessing as freedom from trial. That's how they define it. Blessing is freedom from difficulty. Blessings of health and prosperity, and ease, and security, and good times are the only context of God's blessing for so many Christians. The Bible has a very different definition of blessing. God invariably pours out His love and blessing upon His people in the midst of great trial. If you had to be honest with the text of Scripture, you would have to say that the times of His greatest blessing are the times of greatest trial. So we pray for the blessing of God. We need to remember what we're praying for. God invariably pours out His love and His blessing upon His people in the midst of difficulty. We would like to pray for the blessing. And by the way, hold the pickles, right? Don't bring the difficulties in. We want what we want, but we don't want the way it comes. God sends trial you can guarantee with it comes blessing. If the blessing that you long for is ease of life with freedom from difficulty, you're in for a lot of disappointment in life. 
Because you're not the artist. He is. And God paints in the brilliant paints in the brilliant light of blessing against the backdrop of dark trials. Isaac becomes wealthy and he finds rest. But we need to get the picture here. It's against the teeth of opposition. Trouble. He's scrambling to stay alive, scrambling to water his flocks and his servants and to keep the whole ship afloat. And all of this against this constant, intense pressure from the people of Gerar. God will bless his people, but he does so in the midst of trial. Third scene, Beersheba. Conflict over a time of peace. Beersheba, verse 23, from there he went to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. But now you are blessed by the Lord. Now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we found water. He called it Shilah. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. Beersheba. Beersheba, extreme southern end of Palestine, Abraham's home for some period of time. Isaac is home. Here the Lord appears to him again. And notice the gracious words in verse 24. I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid. God could have leveled Isaac at this point. How could you lie to those people out of fear? But he just comes back with the same word. Don't be afraid, Isaac. Don't be afraid. I am your God. I have promised to protect you and to bless you. Trust me. A repetition of the blessing, which reminds us again of the consistent repetitions of the blessings that were repeated to Abraham. God had to keep reminding Abraham. He keeps reminding Isaac, and he'll keep reminding you. Like his father, Isaac adds another altar to the topography of Canaan in verse 25. Like his father, he worships God. And at that very well, another well, or that very site, now another well is successfully dug. Now, what we have got to bring into this context is the fact that we're not talking here about ringing up a drilling company on the telephone. This is not a common thing to find a well in that part of the world. 
And Isaac is finding well after well after well. Now some of them he knows where they are and he's uncovering what already was, but he's finding wells. And wherever Abraham went, he left altars. And wherever Isaac goes, he leaves altars and he leaves wells. There's little permanent land, only a burial place at this point in time. But they keep marking the land with evidences of God's blessing. God's people are here, and they're going to stay here. They'll have this land someday. And to these wells, even the returning Israelites from Egypt will someday take a drink. At this very site, at this very time, a well. After returning to Beersheba, where Abraham had lived, Isaac receives a surprise visit. You noted that there in verses 26 through 31. I say a surprise visit. It would be the last people you would think would ever come to talk with him. They had just kicked him out of their land. In verse 27, Isaac does not just lie down like the weak party here. He says, listen, you want to establish a covenant. You're the people that just drove me out into the wilderness to die and to lose all of my wealth. Who do you think you are? Abimelech shows, I think, considerable deference here to Isaac by responding with gracious words. He wants to link up with Isaac. What he says is really startling in verse 28. Did you notice that? Verse 28, they answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. Down at the end of verse 29, You are blessed by the Lord. Abimelech had been taking some notes. He'd probably been talking to his advisors here. And they'd said, you, you know what? We've checked it out. Isaac doesn't have any magic for finding wells. And he didn't do anything particularly unique when he planted those crops, as Bedouins would do from time to time. And he planted the crops and he received a hundredfold. This is not a matter of a guy who's just smart. This is not a matter of a guy who just happens to work harder than we do. There's something going on here. And so the king who had kicked Isaac out now offers words of concession. The envious Philistines are at Isaac's tent, and they appeal for a binding peace agreement within the land. What is happening here? Isaac's position in the land is being secured. God is working through circumstances to assure that he'll not be run out. He'll not lose this land, but will receive it as God has promised. There is no one who's going to drive them out. These are the enemies of Isaac. These are the people that hated him. These are the people that if they could have, would have killed him. Now they are establishing a peace agreement in the land. Isaac settles down. And the terms of verses 29 and 30, and the meal here that is uh, taken up in verse 31, <laughs> verse 30 rather, these are all, let me say it again, the words of verses 29 and 31 and the meal of verse 30 are all very common words for a binding covenant in that period of time. The meal itself would have been part of the establishing of a covenant. So just like Abraham and Abimelech in chapter 21, so Isaac and Abimelech sit down here and contract for peace. And to top the day off, as if Isaac could not detect that God was uniquely blessing his life, his servants come, they connect with him and tell him 
You won't believe this. But we've found water. We've found another well. Successfully found water. And so he names it Sibna. Seven or oath is the meaning of the Hebrew word. It can mean either one. And it takes us back to 2131. What does Abraham call the well there where he contracted for peace with Abimelech? Sibna. The well of seven or the well of the oath. However you want to take it. And remember he gave seven lambs there so it can mean either one. And it means either one here. Or I guess here would mean the oath. But it's the well of the oath. What Abraham did right here, Isaac does right here with the same official from the same land. Now, I would draw out this principle for us as we consider this third scene. God blesses his people progressively. He blesses them despite their sin, number one. He blesses them in the midst of trial, number two. And thirdly, God blesses them progressively. God does not generally pour out all his blessing on his people at the start of the journey. We see this with Abraham, and we see this with Isaac. He blesses little by little over time as we make progress on the journey. Notice where Abraham and Isaac started and ended. Abraham went from famine to plenty, and from conflict to peace. Isaac does exactly the same. Slowly, over time, as we look back, we can see God's hand upon us. What we prefer is for God to just kind of pull the lever and down it all comes right on our head, right now. I want all the blessing right now. I want to get it all and complete it. It's not how God works. Generally, it is little by little, patient progress. He pours out his blessing in time. Abraham looks back and he says, I cannot believe where we've come. And Isaac looks back and he says, I cannot believe where we've come. The Christian don't get frustrated in the moment. God isn't going to shine with lights from the sky every afternoon. He's not going to give you this sense of, of unbelievable blessing every day of your life. You're not going to come home most days and say, I can't believe what God has done today. It's as we patiently look back and see he has been there all the time. And as we age, as we mature in the faith, we come to see more and more what I thought was a trial was a course of blessing. What I thought was the end of the world was a new door into the goodness and greatness of God for me. Impatient. Christians are seen to be among the most impatient people on earth sometimes. Be patient. Wait on your God. Day in, day out, keep plowing, and he'll give you those times to turn back and say, I can't believe it. Look where we have come. Slowly over time we look back and we see God's hand upon us. And so should others. If the God who created the universe, if the God who called Abraham and blessed him, and Isaac is the same God who called you, should not others see his hand a blessing on your life? Different scene 
We're not talking about a covenant of physical prosperity. Different scene, different time, but we are under the promises of God just as much as Abraham and Isaac. We are God's people. We belong to the Father who pours out His goodness and pours out His grace, who relates to His people with absolute loyalty. If He's our God, is He going to bless us? And if He's our God, should not other people see it? Should it not be evident to their eyes that God is the artist working in our hearts? We're God's people. He is the artist. We are the recipients of His unique promises. Remember them again. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. He promises in Romans 8.29 to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. If you don't get any joy out of that promise, you've got a problem with God. He has promised to conform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Everything beautiful that you see in Jesus and everything of garbage that you see in your life, you know what? God's working on that. He's working you over. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to produce what? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's his promise to us. He promises us a home and a reward in heaven. John 14, 2 and Hebrews 11, 6. Listen to 2 Peter as he puts Listen to Peter in his second epistle as he puts these together. Listen to this. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You hear the same theme. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through his calling. Through these, he has given us his great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. What does God say in the scene that he paints with Abraham and Isaac? A land and a people. What does he say to you and to me? A home in heaven. And escape from the corruption of this world and its evil desires. A participation in the divine nature. God held his promises with Abraham and Isaac and he'll hold his promises with you and me if we belong to him. If we are recipients of these promises, should not then our lives evidence this? If this is what God is up to in our lives, should not others be able to see it? Now the world may not like us. They may envy us. But should they not see a love and a joy in our homes? Should they not see a love and a joy in our church that bears solid witness that we belong to God? Should they not see in the moral beauty of our lives and the courage, the compassion, and the joy of our hearts that God is blessing that person? I don't know what it is, but as they relate as a family, as they relate with other people in their church, as they deal with the things of life and the difficulties and the trials, there's just something going on there that I can't explain any other way. 
if we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, shouldn't someone see it? Is Abraham's God your God? If he is, he is steadfastly loyal to you. And he is in the business of pouring out his blessing upon you. If you're saved, he loves you despite your sin. If you're his child, he is blessing you with every spiritual blessing in the midst of trial and heartache. Progressively, step by step, he is showering down upon you his grace. God is for you. God loves you with a loyal love. You're at the center of the brilliant tones of grace that he is painting into the storyline of this world. Abraham's God is your God. Isaac's God is your God. By faith, they are your fathers, and you are their offspring. We walk out of here with pride. Guess who I am? know what we do is we gather on the Lord's Day and we worship. As much as I love my wife and appreciate her more than anybody in this place could ever understand, I have never sung a song to my wife to praise her. Maybe I should do that sometime, but that would just seem weird, wouldn't it? Don't sing songs of praise to her. But we sing songs of praise to God because He is God. He is all in all our perfect Father and He showers down upon us His goodness and we deserve none of it. So we gather on this first day of the week to praise, to exalt His qualities, His character. We worship continue to do that together as we bow for prayer.